You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, J-Town. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, life as gift, not gain. Let's dive in. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter two. And if you are able, would encourage you to stand with me in honor of reading God's word. So we're going to be looking at all this chapter. Promise we'll do this quickly, all right? Uh, but I'm just going to read kind of the last several verses here that uh, give us sort of where uh, the writer here lands the plane in Ecclesiastes chapter two. We'll start in verse 15. So I said to myself, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been overly wise? And I said to myself, this is also futile. For just like the fool, there is no lasting remembrance of the wise, since in the days to come, both will be forgotten. How is it that the wise person dies just like the fool? Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for everything is futile and a pursuing or a chasing of the wind. I hated all my work that I labored under the sun because I must leave it to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will take over all my work that I labored at skillfully under the sun. This too is futile. So I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I had labored under the sun. And when there, when there is a person whose work is done with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he must give this portion to a person who has not worked for it, this too is futile and a great wrong. For what does a person get with all of his work and all of his efforts that he labors at under the sun, for all of his days are filled with grief. And his occupation is sorrowful, even at night. His mind does not rest. I'm sure there's a lot of people, including me, would say amen to that. This too is futile. There's nothing better for a person than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I've seen that even that is from God's hand. Because who can eat? And who can enjoy life apart from him? For to the person who is pleasing in his sight, he gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and accumulating in order to give to the one who is pleasing in God's sight. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to you in love. Let's pray together. God, my prayer for me and all of us in this room is that the posture of our hearts would be open hands. Help us to receive from you this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So in case you're, this is your first Sunday joining us, uh, we are uh, stepping into kind of a 12-week series on the book of Ecclesiastes. This will take us through uh, the entire 
uh, summer. So I'm really excited about diving in this book with you guys and seeing what the, the author has to say to us about life. And we've entitled this series, Wise, and the kind of the tagline with this is living life as gift, not gain. And this chapter here is going to kind of better unpack where we got this idea of living life as gift and not gain. So in case you weren't here uh, last week, here's a couple of things I think are really important for us to remember when we dive into the book of Ecclesiastes. We, we've got to keep these two things on our, on our mind. I'll probably hit on these several times over the next 12 weeks. The first thing that you got to remember, Ecclesiastes offers us reflections on the exceptions. Ecclesiastes offers us reflections on the exceptions. And here's what I mean by that. You've got you to keep both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes together. Uh, because if you just took Proverbs alone, then you become very uh, simple, formulaic when it comes to your Christian maturity, right? Because, you know, it's like if you do A and you do B, you're always going to do C, right? You're always going to get this. Here's the formulaic way of living life. And if you've lived life long enough, you'll find that Proverbs doesn't always work out like that. They are not promises from God. Remember that. Proverbs are not promises from God. They're wisdom literature. Generally true, right? If you live like this, this is what's going to happen. That's why we have Ecclesiastes. Dun, 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 they're the exception. And you got to kind of hold both intention and they have a way of interplay that's really, really important for us to get. As one writer puts it, kind of helps us understand what I mean by this reflections on the exceptions. In Proverbs, a man plus God, love and wisdom equals a good life. In Ecclesiastes, a good man plus God's love still dies like the beast or the fool. Amen, we just saw that. And so I, I think personally, for those that have grown up in church and live within the Bible Belt, Ecclesiastes is a gift to you from God to hopefully wake you up out of your naivety and the way you simply apply verses and passages to very complex issues that are going on in human beings' life. Christians do get depressed. And some of you have used verses to condemn an individual who's genuinely depressed. Christians do get anxious. And some of us have used verses, don't be anxious. <laughs> okay, it's not that simple. Ecclesiastes is a gift for us. Second thing I think we need to see and understand here as we get it back in this book, and I'll hit on this quite often, but you've got to understand this word that he uses 38 times. And that word is translated in many different ways. Meaningless, vanity, uh, even here, futility, right? We see it. The Hebrew word is hevel. Right? Say that with me. Say it out loud. Hevel. And so the reason why there are so many different translations of this word is because one English word does not capture that Hebrew word in its fullest. And so go back to my youth ministry days. Amen. So always love using object lessons. Could the people over here can see the little candle that I got here? And you can go home and do this experiment at home. Just make sure if you're young, you have a, a parent around so you don't burn down the house. Amen. So um, if I knew this would happen. There we go. There we go. We got it going. So light a candle, right? Here we go. And this is a good scent too. This is like um, just for us for summer. All right. It's um, hang on a second. I'll tell you what scent it is. It is fireside marshmallow. All right. And it'll be great. 
gonna be smelling some s'mores here in just a minute. So just the visual that I think the writer's wanting us to get when we think about this word hevel, right? It's, it's two, there's two kind of primary things here. The first one is like smoke. It's like a vapor, it's like a mist. It's, it just goes away, it's fleeting, right? You see it here. Now look, all of it's, it's like literally almost gone. That's the first kind of idea. So, so when he uses meaningless, he's not talking about value in life. He's not making a, a, a statement that life in and of itself has no point. Now, that's not what he's primarily after. He's talking about the brevity. It's like, well, it's gone already, right? I mean, it's like great illustration. That's what it is. That's how fast life is. The second nuance to it, and I'll try to light this again really quickly, is this word enigma, all right? And I think I've got a definition of what that word is or what is being captured in this word. It's, it's, enigma means this life under the sun. And you hear the writer of Ecclesiastes saying this over and over. So it's, it's out of the garden, right? It's Genesis 3 on. It's what we're living right now. Life under the sun is frustratingly complexing. It's puzzling. It's incomprehensible. Though still with meaning and significance. So another way of looking at this is when you try to shepherd or kind of control smoke, it doesn't go anywhere, right? It's, you can't grab it. There's nothing to grab there. It's, it's just really perplexing. Life can be sort of a, a puzzle for us. And so I'll just, I'll give you one example of what I mean by this enigma here. And both of these are really important. That's what the, when the writer says, everything is hevel. He's talking about the, 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 the brevity. Like it, it goes by really quick. And there's just a complex nature about life to where it's just really hard to understand sometimes what is going on. So the, the, the way I'll give an example of this, you guys have heard talk a little bit about my mom and her situation as she's suffering through Parkinson's. I went and saw her with my two oldest boys this past Thursday. And here's an 80-year-old man, woman who's the shell of who she used to be. A shell of who she used to be. Barely recognizes my two oldest, if at all. And I'm slowly, here's just reality, I'm slowly watching her die. Here's a, a faithful woman. She's not perfect, right? She's not. She's a faithful, God-fearing woman. Someone that I saw every morning and every evening. And yes, there's a lot of layers to this where she probably sought this out in legalistic ways, but at least there's an example that she showed me of spending time with God. I mean, every morning, every evening, I mean, to the expense sometimes of feeding my pregnant wife when she was throwing up, I got to do my Bible studies. Like, all right, come on, mom, right? But at the same time, there's something there, a faithful presence, a, a beautiful follower of Jesus Christ. What in the world, God? Is that not confusing? Does that really make sense? And then the other extreme of this, guys, today, this afternoon, we'll go to a graveside where we'll change the flowers of my daughter who died back in 2004, had five months in this world. That's it, five months. So, so look, 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 that's what I'm trying to say. It's like, isn't that at least a little confusing and perplexing? And what Ecclesiastes is making you do is to sit in that and stop going to the trite, quick answers that we as Christ followers have a tendency to do. 
Ecclesiastes is wanting you to sit in this perplexing, this confusing, what in the world is going on? Without running to Jesus so quickly. Without giving answers so quickly. That's Hevel. And so what we see here in chapter 2, quickly, kind of three movements here, all right? So the first movement is that he's kind of giving us um, all that he pursued in order to kind of figure out what gain or profit is there in life that led him to believe that everything's Hevel, all right? So what we see in chapter 2 is just kind of like, it's almost like a journal entry. I'm, I'm telling you, everything I pursued after to find something that might settle this ache that I feel inside of me that where I can find some sense of satisfaction in this world. Is there something under the sun that gives profit and gain, all right? So that's, that's what he's doing, kind of chronicling all he pursued. And then the second movement is just simply like, there's something that sent him over the edge that made him go, it's all heaven. All of it. Some sent him over the edge. What was that? And then the third movement, and this is where we'll land the plane, and this is something that is a gift here in chapter 2 that doesn't always land in this book, but he kind of gives us what we're to do in response to this. And so that's what I want to land with. So first of all, let's work through these. Uh, all that he kind of pursued after to, to kind of figure out, man, is there something here that, that there gain profit in this? And you'll see in ver chapter 1, verse 13, where he says this, I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under the heaven. And so what we see him declaring here is that, look, I didn't go send someone out to go do this work for me. No, I did this work myself. I, I explored, I, I sought this out. I went after this really hard to kind of discover what profit is there in this world? What, what gain is there in this life? What, is there really anything that will satisfy this ache that I feel? And so what we see him doing Starting in verse one of chapter two is he kind of takes these two large categories. So he pursued it in pleasure. That's what we see in verse one. And then later on in chapter two, he tried to pursue it through wisdom and folly. And so first of all, when he tried to pursue it through pleasure, he gives us seven kind of amusements that he went after to try to figure out what kind of gain there is in this life. So I'll work through these really quick here. So the first one is found in verse two, laughter, jokes. So maybe I can find some point, meaning, remedy through comedians, right? At least they'll numb me for a little while and laugh my, so hard that I pee in my pants. But at the end of the day, it was a dead end. He tried, verse 3, alcohol. I tried cheering myself up with wine. Maybe there's a way that I can kind of just taste all the finest drinks, taste the best bourbon I can find in Kentucky, whatever. Like, maybe this is it. Dead end. Uh, next one is projects. That's the third thing sought after. Verse four, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. Verse five, I, I made gardens and parks. Right? He didn't just, you know, uh, walk to a park like Cherokee or Parklands of, of, our, of Floyd. No, he, he made his own, right? He, he made his own park. He made his own gardens. He, he planted all the fruit trees in them. He was organic before organic was truly in. Verse six, I made reservoirs to water all these amazing trees and stuff that I planted. And I thought maybe that was it. And that was also a dead end. The fourth one is possessions, his stuff. Look at all the things that he accumulated in verse seven here. I bought male and female slaves. I had either, 
had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. And so, so to get a, a taste of how wealthy he was, and I, I know this, I know there's, this is debated among scholars, but I, I lean toward that the preacher is Solomon. That's who, who he's talking about here. And so if it is Solomon, here's a picture of how wealthy Solomon was. First Kings chapter four, verse 22 says this. This is Solomon's daily provisions. Very important you remember that. Not yearly, not monthly, daily. That's what he says. We're 30 cores, which is 185 bushels of fine flour, 60 cores, which is 375 bushels of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, which is kind of like Walmart beef, a little lower end, 20 of pasture-fed cattle. That's a little more high-end. Put everywhere place you like to get high-end beef at, all right? Um, and a hundred sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. This daily provision here, most scholars estimate, would feed, listen to this, 35,000 people. That's the kind of wealth he had. So he pursued it through possessions and stuff. Verse five, I mean, uh, number five is found in verse eight there, music. I had choir men and women singers. Yes, we have our Spotify playlist, but he actually had personal concerts, right? That didn't do it. The sixth one is sex, verse eight. And a harem as well, the delights of the heart of men. Bible tells us that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. It's a thousand women. A thousand women that were his to do whatever he wanted to. Sexual fantasy he had, whatever body type, hair color, skin complexion, eye color, it was fulfilled. Last one here was greatness, affirmation. Verse 9 I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. So, so just, just remember, there's the seven again, all right? These are the things I pursued after in order to kind of define, is there any gain, right? He's trying to tell us, so this is how I came to the conclusion that all is hevel, that it's all vanity, futility. This is what I pursued after. I pursued after laughter. I pursued after alcohol. I did all kinds of projects. I did, had a ton of possessions and stuff. Music, the best music you can think about. I did everything I could imagine when it came to sex, man. I had thousand women to do whatever I wanted to. I went after greatness and affirmation. And just in case you think I missed something, verse 10 is sort of the junk drawer for all of it. I decide, denied myself nothing, nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart absolutely no pleasure. And what was his conclusion after the pursuit of all seven of these? Verse 11, everything was meaningless. Futile, vanity, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. So if pleasure didn't do it, then maybe I can find it through wisdom and folly. That's what he says in verse 12. Then, look at the transition here. Then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. So he's saying, I, I went after both extremes here. I searched it out in all wisdom, and then I also searched it out in all foolishness. Meaning, right, kind of my translation here. So the high end of this, seeking it out on wisdom, 
is, is re reading the philosophers, reflecting and studying on, you know, things that are way beyond our intellect. He's reading books that you'll never find in Target, amen? While everyone else is watching football, here is Solomon watching a documentary from, on PBS. Like, that's really awesome. So that's the, the wisdom. I sought this out in wisdom, but all the far end of this, and I'm not, please hear me, hopefully I don't take this offense, but here's a way he kind of translates it. The low end of this, Madness and folly is that I'm watching NASCAR every single weekend. If you're a NASCAR fan, awesome. I love you because uh, I, I sort of am too, all right? But here's the point. Like, once again, I pursued wisdom and folly, and where did it take him? What was his conclusion? Verse 15, then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? And I said in my heart, this too. It's meaningless. So I sought it in pleasure. Ah, that didn't do it. All those things, right? Didn't find gain, didn't find profit there. Maybe wisdom, folly, sought it there. Nope, still dead end. All hevel, chasing after the wind. So this was his pursuit. This is the chronicling of what he did in order to come to his conclusion here. But what was the one thing that sent him over the top? What reality did the, did the preacher come face to face with that just sent him over the top and say, meaningless, vanity? It's death. Verse 14. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in the darkness. So that's really good. I mean, it's good to be wise because you, you can see. It's stupid to be fool because you can't see, right? It's just good there. But then look what he says. But I came to realize uh, that the same fate overtakes them both. We both die. What good is it to be wise versus being a fool? For the wise man, verse 16, like the fool, will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise men too must die. Verse 18, I hated all things that I had told for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. I'm going to die. Verse 20, so my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun, for a man may do his work with wisdom and knowledge and skill. And then what happens? He must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless, vanity, futility, havel. A great misfortune. That was the, the thing that sent him over the edge. You're going to die. See, what we have a tendency to do is allow all these things that we do, like our work, our possessions, our family, you know, uh, our hobbies, you know, uh, watching sports, or whatever it is. That's kind of the bubble that we kind of insulate ourselves in, right? To numb us from this reality that you're going to die. You're going, all of us in this room are going to die. And so what the preacher does here is he takes a little needle and he pops that bubble and says, hey, you know what? You can give yourself all these things, but guess what? You're going to still die. And there's no gain, no profit. Maybe you feel like that's really bleak. Maybe you feel like that's really depressing. Maybe you feel like this guy's like, you know, come on, drink some more bourbon, man. You know, lighten up a little bit. But here's, as David Gibson says in his good little book, referring to Ecclesiastes, uh, Living Life Backwards, he says this, 
really helpful. If you haven't wondered why it matters what you do, given that one day you will be a forgotten nobody, then you haven't thought much about the reality of your own death. When you sit down and try to face it head on, the preacher's words begin to bore into our skull. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors on the sun? Not a lot is the honest answer. So let me... Let me try to give you another picture of what the preacher's trying to do for us. Because I do believe he's a gift that we need to hear in 2021. And so last week I gave you kind of more, and I've been using preacher because that's the way you can translate that word, koheleth. But some of you might have kind of like a negative um, view of someone behind this pulpit because they've used this in ways that's wounded and hurt you. And so for you to have a vision of like the preacher, it just, it doesn't feel very inviting because maybe you feel the preacher's like at you all the time, right? Maybe that's how you feel with me sometimes, but I don't mean for that. It's more of just excitement and joy. All right. But, but, but some of you have that experience where this just doesn't do it for you. So another way to look at this, and I had a, a good friend of mine a long time ago talk to me about this before, but he said like, why don't you, um, why don't you like in Envision um, your friendships like a table, like they're, like a table, all right, like seats at a table, so to speak. And and this, this is not gospel; it's just wisdom here. He said, "These are four uh, kind of people that you need around your table." So one would be, um, and these are familiar language because we we see Jesus inhabiting all four of these. But one would be like um, a king. And so that would be kind of translated like someone in, uh, as a leader that can help you understand the, the nuances and the complexities of leading your family, leading a business, leading a corporation, whatever. I mean, every single one of us in this room, no matter what you do for a job, you're a leader. Even if you're 12 or 13 years old, you're leading, you're influencing people. And so you need someone around your table that can help you understand what that is, a king. Another one would be someone like a, uh, a prophet. And what he means by that is that someone that's willing to tell you the truth even when it hurts. Like you need, and sometimes these guys can be the same seat, right? You can bring them together, right? But you need a prophet in your life. You need someone that's willing to speak the truth, maybe even at the expense of maybe risking the relationship. Another, another kind of guy in the, or a girl, right? Doesn't have to be a guy, uh, is a priest. For some of us, that may mean a counselor. And guys, look, counseling is a really good gift that God has given to us. And some of us need a season of that. It could be, um, another language of this would be like a, a spiritual director. Someone that can come alongside you for a few years and just kind of unpack what's really going on in your own life, in your own soul. And another one that sometimes we have a tendency to overlook is the sage. Wisdom. A wise person. And this need for a sage doesn't stop when you turn 60 or 70. You always need someone in this chair. 
And so, what I feel like maybe a different picture for you, that's what the preacher's doing. He's being a sage in your life. Probably has this little candle right in the middle. And every once in a while, he'll light it. Hey, remember, remember, bud, this is life. This is life. And the beautiful thing about this sage, and I've and I got a quote here, he's not coming to us like, um, kind of like pounding the table. When are you going to get it? Right? That's just not like very inviting. But what he's doing here is he's, he, he will not preach at you with unquestioning rhetorical polish as an expert. Instead, what is he going to do? He'll humble himself in your presence. Share his own intimate questions about life with you. And I love this little phrase. And reach out to God with you as he too is a fellow human being. So what, like, look, remember last week what I say, what is he after? He wants you to listen. And as he walks through all these things he talks about in chapter two, he's just looking at you and going, look, I, you're experimenting with all these same things. You're going from here to here to here to here. And I'm here to tell you, I had everything and I came up with nothing. I climbed that ladder, whatever ladder that is that you've got in your mind. If I do this, if I have this, if I succeed this, if whatever, all of us have got it, all right? Don't sit here and say, oh, I don't have that. Like, yes, we all have it. You need to discover what that ladder is. He's basically saying, look, I've got there. Whatever you lay on the table, I've got to the top. And I'm, and I'm, I'm looking back and you going, look, look, there's nothing there. It's, it's vanity. It's it's hevel. It's, even if you succeed, like he's not, this is what some, sometimes preachers will do, right? They'll say, oh, sex is horrible. No, it's not. It's actually really amazing. Having stuff, oh, it's horrible. No, you know, I just, I just had to borrow my neighbor's zero-turn mower last night because our mower is like doing all kinds of weird stuff and I'm trying to fix it, or my oldest is trying to fix it. And I got to sit on the zero-turn mower, and I'm going, oh, my gosh, this is like mowing in heaven. This is what's going to crying out loud. So it's not like, oh, that was a horrible experience being on this mower. Oh, it was amazing, right? But he's coming to you and saying, look, at the end of the day, it's, it's empty. It's still Leaves you wanting. And so if you're really listening to what the sage is saying to you, then I think the next question you would ask is, then, okay, wh what do I do with these things, all right? I, I still have work, Lyle, or preacher, you know what I'm saying? I still have relationships. I've got a spouse. I've got school. I've got a new job. I've got things that I really want to pursue? Is it like wrong for me to pursue after a career and try to make money? And is it wrong for me to try to like, you know, work up the, like what, what am I to do with all this stuff that we have in this world? Well, he gives us an answer here, which is kind of rare because I mentioned last week, the point of the book is not till chapter 12. He makes us wade through all this stuff, right? But he does give us a little answer here at the end of chapter 2. And there are two things that I want to end with of what we are to do, and they all are in the posture of receiving. That's why at the end of the benediction, we went from this, right? Oh, Hitler, not, not doing that anymore, right? To this. Thank you for a little bit of laughter, all right? Um, this is, what is this? This is a posture of receiving. 
And I would argue that's your fundamental posture of life. Because God's the giver. And this is how we are. So the first thing we're going to receive is this. We're going to receive all of life as gifts, not gain. Or another way of putting this, as Zach Eswan says in his book, we're going to view all of life with this sacred worldliness. And I love that because he's redeeming a word that we all look at and think negative. Oh, you're worldly. Don't stay away. Yeah, there is some truth in that. But I love how he's redeeming this by bringing in this word sacred, sacred worldliness. Now, where am I getting this? This idea of receiving as gift, not gain. Verse 24, look what he says. A man can do nothing better than to eat, drink, and find satisfaction as his work. This too, I see, is from what? Or from who? The hand of God. So this is, this is not the writer kind of carrying on a mantra that we hear in our day that basically says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you'll die. <laughs> That's not what he's saying here. What the preacher's saying here is eat, drink, and be merry because that is what there is. And there's a big difference. I'll say it again. The mantra is not eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. Woo-hoo! No, it's eat, drink, and be merry because that is, is what there is. God has given the good things of this world to us and they are there as their own reward. We don't have to get more out of them than what they've been created to give and that is to give joy to us. They're gifts from him. So a quick example of this so you understand what I'm talking about in case you're going like, what in the world is he saying? Most of you know Timothy Keller. Um, I've Quote him a ton, read a lot of his books, and been a mentor of mine from afar. Never met the guy, but his books have really, really helped me. And I don't know if you know this, but last year, about this time, uh, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Went in for a checkup to kind of figure out what's going on with his body and came out with a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. And as you know, that kind of cancer is not promising. He's got about a one to three year life expectancy, depending on how he responds to treatment. And so he wrote an article in the Atlantic uh, back in March, encourage you to go look this up, Growing My Faith in the Face of Death, which kind of gives a little background of what he's going through, as well as talks about the surprises that is going on in him and his wife, Kathy, as a result of this diagnosis of his imminent death that's coming. This is what he says here. Got a few slides. Since my diagnosis... Kathy and I have come to see that the more we tried to make a heaven out of this world, the more we grounded our comfort and security in it. Listen to what he says, the less we were able to enjoy it. Example, talked about them going on vacations. And when they would go on vacations, Kathy loved getting away from the city, getting away from the craziness of life. She loved the respite there, loved how no matter if it was a shack you know, with little lights hanging up or in a beautiful beach home. She just loved it. Like the spaces she longed for. His kind of what he called studio salvations was he was more about like getting things done, being driven by writing books, you know, like going after another milestone for their church, going after new initiative projects. And for this reason, we found that when we got to the end of the vacation, wherever it was, our responses were both opposite and yet strangely the same. This is what he means. 
Kathy would begin to mourn the need to depart almost as soon as they, she arrived. Amen? Anybody done that? On Monday, you're depressed. Oh, we got to leave by Friday, right? Which made it impossible for her to fully enjoy herself. I, however, would always chafe and be eager to get back to work. I spent much of my time at the beach brainstorming and writing out plans. Neither of us learned to savor the moment. So we never came home refreshed. Kathy and I should have known better. In fact, we did know better. When we turn good things into ultimate things, when we make them as our greatest consolation and loves, listen, we say in here, they will necessarily disappoint us bitterly. Thou hast made us for thyself, Augustine said in his most famous sentence, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. To our surprise and encouragement, Kathy and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, listen to what he says here, the more we're able to enjoy it. No longer are we burdening it with demands impossible for it to feel. We have found that the simplest things from the sun on the water, flowers in the vase, to our own embraces, sex, and conversations bring more joy than ever. This has taken us by surprise. He ends by saying this. This change is not an overnight revolution. As God's reality dawns, he's talking about his own death. The more on my heart, slowly and painfully through many tears, the simplest pleasures of this world have become sources of daily happiness. It is only as I have begun, for the lack of a better term, more heavenly minded that I can see the material world for the astonishing, good, divine gift that it is. That's what I mean by sacred worldliness. That's what I mean by receiving life, all these good things as gifts, not gain. If you grew up in church, you probably remember this song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of the earth filled in for me will grow. You ever thought about this song? I mean, there's a lot of truth there. I understand what the author is trying to say. And at the same time, it's really wrong. That's not the goal. The things of the earth have never been the problem. That's what Ecclesiastes is trying to, it's never been the problem. We're the problem. We're the crooked heart. We're the crooked beings that, that can't get straight. We're, we're the problem. We're the ones that are taking the things of the earth and making them ultimate. We're the ones that are taking the things of the earth and saying, this is going to do it for me. This is going to do it for me. And we try to get something out of it that it was never created to give. And it could be good things. We've said this before. It could be your, your family, your wife, your job. It doesn't have to be evil, wicked things. You're trying to get something out of it that was never created to live. Like Zach Aswan says, we're trying to play soccer with a watermelon. A watermelon's a wonderful fruit to eat on Memorial Day. It's a terrible soccer ball. No, it needs to say, turn your eyes on Jesus so that the things of the earth can be enjoyed as God enjoys them and says they are good. In Genesis 1 and 2, everything he created, he didn't say, stay away from. Oh, that's bad. Oh, don't get too happy, right? 
No, he told Adam and Eve, no, they are good. Enjoy them. Everything, except for one. That's what I mean by sacred worldliness. The answer is we receive all of life as a gift, not gain. It won't give it to you. What's the definition of insanity? What is it? Keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. And all of us are doing it, including me. And, and the sage is coming. Going, Stop. I've done it. Will you listen? And the last thing we do, and this is where I'm done. Look what he says in verse 25. For without him, meaning God, who can eat or find enjoyment. So we're going to receive all life as gift, not gain. And the only way you can do that is when you receive God in and through Jesus Christ, because he's the only one that can rescue us from this stupid, insane pursuit that we're after. And he's the one that can redeem us and renew us and our hearts and our desires so that we see life, all these things as good gifts, not as little gods that I'm bound down to. So it's not only receive life as a gift, not gain. It's you've got to receive God in and through his son, Jesus Christ, because he's the only one that will forgive you for all these crazy pursuits and renew your heart so you can see them as they are gifts from him. Let's pray. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.